Hebrews chapter 12 tonight, the book of Hebrews chapter number 12. It was August 7th, 1954. It was during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. One of the greatest mile run matchups ever took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because Roger Bannister and John Landy were the only two sub four minute milers in the world. Bannister had been the first man ever to run a four-minute mile. Both runners were in their peak condition. Dr. Bannister strategized what he would do, and, and in his mind, his method of strategy was that he would relax during the third lap and save everything for his finishing drive. But as they began the third lap, John Landy poured it on. And he stretched his already substantial lead. Immediately, Bannister adjusted his strategy, increasing his pace, gaining on Landy. The lead was cut in half. And at the bell for the final lap, they were actually even. Landy began running even faster. And Bannister followed suit. He felt that he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. Then came the famous moments, been replayed thousands of times in print and celluloid, as at the last stride, just before the home stretch, the crowds roared. Landy could not hear Bannister's footfall, and thus compulsively he looked back. That was a fatal lapse in his concentration. Bannister launched his attack and Landy did not see him until he lost the lead. And he never was able to regain it as Roger Bannister won the miracle mile that day by five yards. Landy's lapse serves, I think, as a modern visualization of what the writer of Hebrews is implicitly warning against in the earlier charge to us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'll let you remain seated, but notice verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now notice, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now look at it. And let us run with patience, with endurance, the race that is set before us. Notice verse 2. Looking Unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The idea there in verse 2 of looking unto Jesus, and we've said this before, is the idea of looking away from everything else and looking unto Jesus. Those who look away to Christ, you will finish well. But those who look away from Christ, the end goal of our race will never finish well. And this is exactly what was happening to some 
treading the stormy waters that were mounting around the early church when the writer of Hebrews is speaking. They'd begun to take their eyes off of Christ and to fix them instead on the hardships that were challenging them. The recipients of the Hebrew letter, they were having some spiritual fainting spells. Much of the book of Hebrews deals with trying to encourage these Hebrew Christians, trying to cure the disheartment because they're facing trials and tribulations and, and tough tragic situations, their suffering, difficulties have come their way. And I think what the writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, but because it's silent, it's, it'll always be a matter of controversy. But, but I believe the hope that he's giving is this in verse 1 and 2 is that no matter the situation, the Savior is bigger and stronger, so keep your eyes on him. But then beginning in verse 5, beginning in verse 5, we find there's a change. Let me, let me give it to you this way. Beginning with verses 1 through 5, the writer provides reasons why they should not be disheartened because of trials and tragedies and sufferings and opposition. There's basically three things. Number one, he's telling them, in verse number one, remember chapter 11. When you're going through trials and difficulties that just take the wind out of your cells, it just makes you feel like I just would rather crawl up into a fetal position and just wait out the storm. He says, no, remember chapter 11, that great faith chapter, and the writer's pointing out to some great examples of men and women of faith. Their faith was what brought through them through the suffering and the trials and the adversity. So he says in verse 1, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, remember chapter 11. And then he tells us in chapter number 12, he uses the example of Jesus who suffered. And he tells us, and notice in verse number three, for consider him, that's Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So he says, remember Jesus. Don't just remember those in chapter 11, men and women who endured great and trying difficulties, but were able to come through it because of their faith in God, but remember Jesus. And you shouldn't be disheartened when you remember what Jesus went through. And what Jesus went through, he went through because of you. But then there's a third reason that we suffer and much of our discouragement and disheartment is a result. And this is what verse 5 is picking up. And, and he says in verse number 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And so the, the third reason why we should not lose heart when we're facing adversity is not just because of those examples in chapter 11, because of the example of Jesus in chapter number 12, but also because we should not forget the primary truth in the spiritual life. And and he's saying that there are some who have forgotten. There are Christians who have had spiritual amnesia. We forgot. We forgot what God is doing. We forgot the purpose. 
And it's caused some to doubt. It caused some to be frustrated. And it causes some to become disheartened in their own Christian life. And so he says, don't forget the, the purpose, the working of God in the Christian life. Remember, it's an inside out process. And so he says, don't forget this. The epistle recognizes that Hebrews recognizes that not all who hear or read God's word give complete total attention to it. At times, truth is quickly forgotten. That's what he says back in chapter number two. He's telling the, the readers, don't get distracted and drift away from the truth. And he's always seemingly coming back to this, reminding them, pay close attention, focus in on what God is doing. In verse number five that we just read, he's quoting a familiar quote found in Proverbs chapter three in verse 11 and 12. And he's trying to drive home his point using this familiar quotation. The quotation, it presents us with three important aspects of this particular theme that he's moving into. And that is the Lord's discipline, the Lord's correction, the Lord's dealing with his people. Notice again verse number five. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Some of you have forgotten the reason why your response is not a spirit-filled response is because you've forgotten what the Spirit of God is up to. And he says, here's the quote, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And three things he mentions here is that some have become indifferent to what God is doing in their life. They've just become indifferent by it. They, they've forgotten and, and it just really doesn't mean much to them. Two, others have become overwhelmed by God's dealing within their life. But number three, he's telling us that Christians ought to rejoice when God is showing his favor and concern in dealing with his people. See, one of the great mysteries of the Christian life has been, why is it that we have to suffer? Why do Christians suffer? And there are some who suffer like Job. Job. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 of Job, he was a perfect man. He, he was a, a, meaning he was upright. He was mature. And, and he was on God's list. God recommended Job to Satan. God allowed the devil to afflict him and inflict him as a trial and as a testing of his faith and confidence in God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us that God is going to try our faith, that the Father would be glorified through our stability and our believing and our confidence with God. So many times Christians will suffer like Job suffers. And Job illustrates a kind of misfortune, a kind of tragedy and sorrow and a suffering that comes into a Christian's life. 
in order to exhibit a soundness of one's faith in God, confidence in God, dependence upon God. We sang, I don't know if it was tonight or this morning, but we sang, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. And God will allow that suffering and trial to come to increase that and strengthen that, that sweetness of trusting in him in order to increase faithfulness and to increase stability because when when Job was attacked by Satan all through the protection of God and the care of God Job's latter end was better than the beginning I've said to many going through some hard times and difficult times I don't have the answer as to why God does and if he hasn't told you yet then you just keep trusting him but I guarantee you this you cooperate with God the end will be greater than the beginning but many Christians suffer as Job and as God allows this to happen a New Testament similarity in this illustration would be Paul with his thorn in the flesh Another example of a Job-type suffering. But there are those who don't just experience a Job-type suffering, but some experience a Jesus kind of suffering. You know, Jesus suffered. He suffered because He was God. He suffered because He was godly. Jesus suffered because He was truth. He suffered because He spoke truth. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter again reminds us, don't be surprised that when you identify with Jesus in your living, you find yourselves identifying with Jesus in your suffering. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, if this world hated me, he said, it's because um, if, if they hate you, it's because they hated me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave that, the, the Beatitudes to his disciples, the constitution of the Christian life of following him. And Jesus said, when you're persecuted for my sake, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad because you're identifying with Jesus. So Christians suffer like Jesus suffered at times simply because you're being obedient to your heavenly father. You're being identified with the righteousness of, the, of God. And the world will react to that with suffering and chastisement that, that may come a persecuting, a, a, an opposition simply because you identify with Jesus. When a Christian suffers this way, the Bible says, how to be happy about it because it identifies you with the Lord. So there are times you may go through a Job type suffering where God allows it in order to strengthen your faith, stabilize you and keep you in a place of, of dependence upon the Lord and so that you can say like Job, when he's tried me, I'm going to come forth, but I'm not just going to come forth, but I'm going to come forth as gold, precious and purified and more usable. But also there will be times you suffer like Jesus because of truth's sake. But then there's a third kind of suffering. It's the Jonah type of suffering. Jonah suffered not as a test of his faith. He suffered not because he was identified with the righteousness of God. But Jonah suffered because he was disobedient and rebellious to his Lord. And the Bible calls this chastisement. 
discipline. The Hebrew Christians here have forgotten about that. The writer of Hebrews is saying, some of you are suffering like the heroes of the faith suffered. You're suffering like the Job kind of suffering. Some of you are suffering like the Jesus kind of suffering, the way he suffered. But now in verse number five, he's saying, but some of you are suffering because of your disobedience, your lack of cooperation with God, because of the sin that's in your life, because of your sinful actions, your sinful attitudes, you're experiencing a Jonah kind of suffering. And the Bible's very clear that God will discipline his children. Do you know God has a right to do as any father has a right when it comes to disciplining his children? He can whip, he can spank, and he can discipline his children however he sees fit. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, God warned his people that in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 5, that thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Again, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, the Lord says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So the heavenly father is going to chasten us. But why does he do that? Well, one of the reasons is in verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You know, the truth is, when Jesus died on the cross, he died because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves us. But do you know that the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the living God tells us that God loves you when he's correcting you. For if he doesn't correct you, he doesn't, one, love you, or two, you don't belong to him. I want to remind us that we can sin, but you cannot sin and get away with it if you're a child of God. You simply cannot. You cannot sin and win as a child of Almighty God. Why? Because He loves you. And He loves you too much to let you get away with what has put Jesus on the cross. God loves you. And therefore, He's going to deal with you as with those whom He loves as His children. And so tonight, I want to preach on this thought. God loves you when he's correcting you. And I want you to see three things in this passage that can help us in this regard. Number one, the manner of chastisement. The manner of chastisement, notice in verse five. The Bible says, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the, here's the first manner, the chastening the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art, here's another one, rebuked of him. 4 verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And here's a third one, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
So the manner of chastisement comes in three, three forms. One is in the area of rebuke. When he speaks of rebuke, he is speaking in one of the ways in which God chastens his children. And he says, don't faint when thou art rebuked of him. He, he, he says rebuked. God will rebuke sometimes just through our thoughts where the Spirit of God convicts us and rebukes us. This is one of the gentlest kinds of chastisement. It's a word of rebuke. Do you know that this same word rebuke is the same that is found in the preaching of God's word? We're to preach the word, Paul says, and one of the ways in which it's to be done is to rebuke. In order for God to deal with us, one of the gentlest ways is through the word. The word read, the word spoken, the word preached. It's a gentle form of chastisement. How many times when we kneel in prayer and all of a sudden God begins to chasten us with a word of rebuke. He begins to convict us and he begins to bear upon us the sorrow for our sinfulness. I believe God always uses this method first. I believe he always uses this method first. And this is why the writer of Hebrews again goes back to chapter 2 and he warns us, take heed. Take heed to this. Don't drift. Don't be careless in how you hear the word of God. And that's why I put the emphasis upon what James puts the emphasis upon. Don't just hear it. Apply it. Imbibe it. Embrace it. Do something with it. Be a good steward of truth. Some of you, you make up your mind. Perhaps when you walk in, you've already made up your mind. You're not responding. I've talked to some about the matter of getting right. I'll get right. I'll get right. But you don't get right. Why? Because you don't give a rip about what God says. And God says, I'll take care of you. But one of the ways in which he does is through the preaching of God's word. This is the, one of the gentlest ways. Because this is a declaration of God's opinion. God knows how to take it from the outside and take it to your inside. We'll move to that manner. Preach the word. He tells us to be instant in season, out of season. What does that mean? That means I've got a responsibility when you want to hear it, when you don't want to hear it. When thousands would get saved at the preaching of Peter in Acts 2 or with thousands of stones cast upon Stephen makes no difference. My responsibility is I've got one to please, nothing to prove. And the declaration is God's manner of love through rebuke. So how, how do you even position yourself when you come in? I mean, some of you, you just plop down, you come in 15 minutes late, plop down, and you have no intention of engaging. You don't sing a song. You, you don't participate. You don't respond in preaching. You don't respond in the invitation. The only time you respond is if it somehow has to do with you. I say we're in the right place for Rebuke. That's what the preaching of the word is to do. You say, I like the encouragement. You don't get encouraged until you respond properly to the rebuke. 
Gentle word of persuasion, rebuke, conviction. If that's not responded to, then there is chastening. He moves on and he says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Now we get our word education from this word chastening. It means to correct. And that's a little bit more severe than just rebuke. And sometimes the word of rebuke is not enough. There has to be some discipline. Some measures have to be taken. Some penalties have to be erected. And the Spirit of God knows how to do that. We've seen, we saw the other Sunday night, and, and there's plenty of instances where he says, but I will meet this out in a person's life even through means of the church. And the church will take uh, steps in which there can be discipline. Sometimes people respond, don't respond right, and they just say, I'm going to remove my membership so that that doesn't have to happen. And I know pastors who do not perform church discipline because people withdraw their membership. I say you withdraw your membership. It has no bearing upon whether we do discipline or not. We do discipline even if you withdraw your membership. We expose what God says to expose. We deal with what God says to deal with. We handle what, what God says to handle, whether you cooperate or not. The point is that God is trying to correct. God is trying to bring one who's not repentant to a place of repentance. And so if rebuke is not heeded, then there is a chastening, then there is corrective measures that would be taken. Then he says in verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth. Now there's nothing gentle about scourging. There's nothing tender about scourging. But when the gentle word of rebuke from the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the leadership of God is not hearkened and it doesn't bring us into line with God's holiness, and when the correction of chastisement will not bring us into line with God's holiness, then God is forced to pick up the scourge, the rod, and He scourges us. Sometimes scourging has to do with a premature death. You know, I suppose you go out and there you are um, at at a restaurant and and you see um, a a dad and and, and his child there and a, a small toddler, a couple years old and Toddler is not sitting down, not cooperating, and, and, and the dad is saying that you're going to have to do this. This is, not, this is not up to you. You don't eat what you want to eat. You eat what we tell you to eat, and you don't, um, you don't get up when you want to get up. You get up when we say to get up. And, and by the way, I don't expect the children to be perfect. I do recognize that it's a growing process, but I do expect what God expects, and that is we ought to be on top of it and dealing with it. And so don't ever apologize whenever someone says, I'm sorry, I have to deal with my... No, you don't apologize. That's what you have to do. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, You ought to apologize if you don't deal with the error and the wrong. And so dad sees, well, the child's not 
not responding. The child gets up and goes to another table, knocks everything off the table, and the dad's still trying to respond. And, and dad finally says, this is not working. You're not listening. Taking you to the bathroom didn't work, and I'm going to take you on out. Now, dad can do that. And dad can take the child and forfeit maybe his... Uh, his french fries or his ice cream sundae and whatever it was. And dad, dad calls the shots. You didn't cooperate? You didn't want to listen? Well, well, we'll take you on home. God's done that a number of times. Where it says you've brought dishonor and shame to the cause of Christ. You thought you're bigger than God. You've acted like you're untouchable and you can do whatever you want to do. You'll be more valuable coming home with me. Scourging. That's the manner of God's correcting. I want you to see number two, the ministry of correction. The ministry of correction. I've got chastisement. I should use the word correction to be a little bit consistent. Number two, the ministry of chastisement or correction. See, God not only has a right to correct us, but he has a reason to correct us. There's a reason for this. You know, God never does anything without a purpose. Even when it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. Notice in verse number 10, and he's using a contrast between our earthly father and our heavenly father. Notice in verse number 10, for they, referring to our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, that is God for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. We're seeing a purpose here. Let's go back to verse number 8. should have read the preceding verses to help us with the train of thought. But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, that is, all of God's children. But if ye be without chastisement, then the conclusion is, then are ye bastards and not sons. For furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So he's telling us our earthly fathers chastened us for a few days. Meaning while we were living with them, while we were under their leadership, and they chastened us. Notice what he says how they chastened us. They chastened us after their own pleasure. I know some of you sit here and think, that's exactly what I thought. I, I knew dad got a kick out of kicking us. You know, I, I knew that they loved it. They said it hurt me more than it hurts you, but that's not true. And uh, at least not in the same place it didn't. And, uh, and, and you say, dad got a kick out of it. And I say uh, this because uh, I have a feeling that some Thought all along, that's mom and dad, they just love to, to well into us. But that's not what he's saying. He's, saying, he's not saying that they enjoyed um, uh, giving chastisement. That is, you know, a, a good parent is the assumption here. But what, what it means is they chastened us as seemed right or as seemed good to them. And the writer is saying now they were not always correct in doing it. 
And, and any parent knows that there are times when we chasten a child and we may chasten for a wrong reason or we may correct more out of anger, which should never happen, but, but, but it, it can happen. And we're doing it more because of anger than because of their disobedience. We're doing it because of our being frustrated versus because of their sin. This is what the writer is saying. An earthly father, an earthly mother, they're human. They err, they punish us, they chasten us as seems good to them. And once in a while they may make a mistake. And his point is, but God never does. The Heavenly Father knows all things and He chastens us for our profit, for our good. He chastens us in order to make us better, in order to perfect His purpose within us. And so there are basically three reasons the writer gives why God chastens one of His children. There are times in a Christian life when God is going to lay the rod to you. Chastening is not the everyday trial that you just fall into. No, there is some, something that God lays on you in this matter of chastening. This is something God instigates. This is something the Lord inaugurates. This is something He is doing. He's doing it. He takes the whip. He takes the rod. He's the one who steps in to chasten and correct. And three reasons. Number one, verse number nine. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So one of the reasons, and, and I can get a few. I'm just trying to, if I could take the several that are mentioned and implied and try to put them together. I think there's three we're going to land on. The first one is God corrects us so that he can deliver us. So that he can revive us. He mentions live. He wants us to live again. That's what revival is. Revival is life again. Life revive, re-life. It's life again. And God is correcting us. Jonah is that great illustration. If God had not laid the rod of chastisement against the back of Jonah, Jonah never would have repented. He would never have become obedient. He would have never preached to Nineveh. Nineveh would have never repented. The whole city would have been lost forever. But there are people who will be in heaven because God put the rod of correction to the back of Jonah. And God had to chasten Jonah in order to purge out that sin of rebellion and deliver him. Is there some sin in your life that you continue to hang on to, cling to, love and practice and participate in against all the warnings of God? You've become um, indifferent to the preaching. You've become indifferent to the concern that comes from the leadership. You become indifferent. I don't care. I tell you this, God will deal with you. And if he doesn't, it's just because you're not saved. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else you can exegete it, you can uh, eisegete it, you can um, do whatever gymnastics you want to. You can't come away and, and recognize, you know, I think God will let me get away. He'll let me slide. No, he's not your grandfather. He's your heavenly father if you're saved. And he will deal with you as such. Are you forcing God to pick up the rod and lay it to you in order to purge you of your sins? 
I, I recognize that everyone's on a journey. And that's the way I, I put the Christian life. It's, on, it's a journey. We're on a journey. But I recognize that there are some that are just, they're, they're, they're just aloof. And, and it's like, I feel like, go to them. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to, and I've been on this, again, stirred by Paul in Galatians. And, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to be nitpicky, but when, a year goes by and two years go by and we're just ticking off the, the long suffering. It does run out. Jesus did cleanse a temple a couple of occasions and I don't think he was smiling like a Cheshire cat while doing it. The meek and lowly baby Jesus, he cleansed the temple because enough is enough and when it starts hurting and the toxicity of your sin starts affecting the church of the living God, Jesus has an issue. There's a second reason for correction, and that is God corrects us for our good. He corrects us for our good to be close to Him in experiencing His nature. Notice verse 10. For they, again referring to our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit... God's doing this for me. Why? That we might be partakers of his holiness. See, family discipline is motivated by and tends to be subject to the personal whims or the views of the parents. Even if it's right, I'm just saying that that's what the writer is saying. It's at their pleasure or as they choose. The motives for parental discipline are not always commendable. And as humans, the method may fail and the purpose could be, it could be selfish. But all of God's disciplinary processes are directed for our good, all of it. There's an immediate benefit. And by his very nature, as our loving and generous father, he could not possibly introduce any form of correction into our lives which would not be a real, immediate, and long-term help to us. More than all else, God's longing that we might share His holiness. Our closeness to God in sanctification. He wants it to be real. He wants it to be an inside-out experience. See, adversity sometimes helps us to enter more fully into indebtedness to God, partnership with Christ, reliance on the Holy Spirit. In this way, we can more fully share in His holiness. And so He chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Drop down to verse 14. He says, follow peace with all men and, what's the word? Is it a big deal? Sure. Without which no man shall see the Lord. You, you, you're, whatever quiet time you have, it may be just you, but it's not with the Lord until you partake in His nature. Experience. No, He's talking to those who are saved. They've already become partakers of the divine nature. He's not saying positionally you need to become holy. No, they are. He's saying practically and experientially you need to be holy. And sometimes the sin, well not sometimes, always sin is what robs us of the experiential nature of God's holiness. And so God will correct us. Why? So we can be partakers of his holiness. Why? Because without it, you can't see God. You're not going to know him. 
Listen, when you came to Jesus Christ and received him as your Savior, God said, all right, here's my plan for you. My plan for you is not to take you to heaven. In fact, I'm not sure if I can find a verse that says that. But I've got quite a few of them that tells us that his plan is to make you holy. Why? Because without being holy, you're not going to see the Lord. See, heaven is thrown in as a dividend. It's just a fringe benefit. It's not the main thing. You read Ephesians chapter 1 where he says he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy before him in love without blame, that we should be holy. Why? Because without that, you're not going to see the Lord. Well, I thought God predestined me to go to heaven. No, he predestined you to be like Jesus. Have you ever heard of the phrase change into his image? What's the whole point? So you can see Jesus. God says one way or another, it's going to happen if you'll cooperate with my correcting you or it's going to happen by my scourging you. He may take you out of this world a little bit premature. Ask Ananias and Sapphira about that. You know what Ananias and Sapphira's sin was, you remember? It was the sin of pretending to be right with God. That's what it was. They pretended to be right with God. And Peter said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? See, that's why, to me, invitations, they're business meetings. They're not about finances, but they're business meetings about our faith. Can you trust God and His Word to do right by God? And his word. When we come to Jesus, Jesus is saying, You're locked in. You're one of mine. I've got a plan for you. In other words, if you've ever been saved, you're going to heaven whether you want to go <laughs> or not. If you've ever been saved, you're going to be holy. Whether you want to or not. You say, I will stiffen my neck and I will harden my heart. I will refuse to be exercised by the chastening of the Lord. All right, then you're forcing God to do more. You know, Pastor Van Gelderen used to, would tell us, remind us, don't ever be embarrassed by your children. Don't be embarrassed by your children. Sometimes parents get embarrassed. They said, don't get embarrassed by your children. Do right. Discipline them. Do right. You only get one shot at it. Do right. Listen, young people, you ought to be working at paying attention in church. You ought, I said, you ought to be working at paying attention in church. And it's important, parents, and it's important, church, that your kids sit with uh, their own family. You teach them. You show them. You show them how you pay attention in church. You know God doesn't get embarrassed. He just, he just takes you out behind the woodshed. He doesn't get embarrassed. He loves you. He, he, there is an accuser of the brethren, but he's not looking over his shoulder wondering what the devil thinks. 
But the Bible says he looks at us sometimes and he weeps. Because he's got a plan for us. God's not afraid. You're his child. Our Heavenly Father is not like a scared, intimidated, weak parent that we have so much of today who are afraid of their own children. God's not afraid. And God's going to see to it that you become a partaker of His holiness, of His nature. Why? Because He wants you to know Jesus. Amen. He knows the only ones who are going to be happy are the ones who are going to be holy. The most miserable person in this building is the one who is saved and rejects the very means that God has made available to make them holy. The indwelling spirit, as we yield to his guidance and his leadership, he'll make us holy. That's what he does. He is referred to as the Holy Spirit. But many times we will not yield to that gentle pressure, that gentle, friendly persuasion of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so God must take up the rod. He says, I want you to be a partaker of my holiness. I want you to be a part of my nature. I'm, I'm not going to allow you to dishonor my name. You belong to me. You're my son. You're my child. I'm your father. I love you and I'm going to chasten you in order to promote your inside out process of being changed into my image. That's the ministry of chastisement. But then there's a, the third aspect of this ministry of chastisement or correction. And we find this in verse 11. He says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, at the time, all discipline is painful. But he tells us, here's the third thing, God corrects us so that we can be fruitful. He, he wants us to be that instrument, that conduit that abides in him, him and us, and his fruit, his fruit will be a part of our very life. Love, joy, peace. And people say, boy, she is the most loving, joyful, peaceful person I know. And a person who understands the union with Christ could say like Paul, it's not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. Amen. There's an ultimate purpose, and though it may seem painful at the moment, what's the ultimate purpose? Ultimate usefulness. Yes. It says later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Notice this word in verse 11. Um, let me highlight it here as, as I read it. Verse 11 um, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, notice this word, afterward. Afterward. Listen, it takes time. It takes God's time. Divine correction provides the church with well-equipped Christians. The writer here leaves his, this horticulture illustration he's been using talking about the chastisement of the believer's fruit. And he goes back to this athletic imagery that he was using in verse number one and two. And, and he's telling us that those who are exercised, trained, they know that it requires effort. But boy, is it worth it. Because God's use of correction in our life ultimately makes us useful. Let's just see the third thing. We saw the manner of chastisement, the ministry of chastisement, but I want you just, just in just a brief moment, the message of chastisement. 
Listen to it again in verses 5 through 7. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. It's simply referring to the struggles you're going through. It's probably not produced a lot of blood. You've not been tortured. Not like those in chapter 11 that were burned at the stake. And so he says, if you're still reading this, you're not quite there, though it may be rough. Verse number 5 And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of, of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? What's the message of chastisement? There's two things about this. Number one, the word of comfort. The word of comfort found in verse 6. And what is it? God loves you. That's what he's saying. Don't you forget this. This is the message of God's correcting. God loves you. God loves you. Henry Blackaby said, God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will work in your life to cause you to resemble Christ. Don't misunderstand God's discipline in your life. It is not spiritual warfare of the enemy. No, it is not a sign that God has abandoned you. No, it is an indication that God loves you and he is determined for you to experience his very best. That's a word of comfort when you're going through correcting times with God. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, God will go to any lengths to bring us to an acknowledgement of who he is. Amen. But the message of chastisement is not only a word of comfort that God loves you, but there's a warning against carelessness. He says, don't despise God's discipline in verse 5. He says in verse 5, don't faint or give up when being disciplined. In verses 6 through 7, he says, stay under God's loving correction. Don't despise discipline. Don't faint or give up. And stay under. Cooperate with God's loving correction. G. Campbell Morgan said this. We cry too often to be delivered from the punishment instead of the sin that lies behind it. We are anxious to escape from the things that cause us pain rather than from the things that cause God pain. Amen. Let's stand together, please.